in this place. We just say thank you for letting us be in your family. Thank you for the family of God. And Lord, we just bring to remembrance every way you've provided for us. We say thank you. Every way you provided for us with your blood, the way you provided for us financially. When we were in need, you came to us. We say you are worthy, holy, good, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, everybody. My name is Jeremy King, and I am the young adult pastor here at Antioch. And hey, I'm telling you, it's the time to be a young adult. Uh, God is doing amazing things. And uh, I'm just excited to be in the room with you. And I want to show you all a picture of my family. Got them up here. Uh, so my wife, Amy, daughter, Annabelle, and my son, Emmett. Uh, Emmett's loving that grass. And I still don't know how to make my lawn look like that. But I should have brought some home with me. We were in Washington, D.C. And uh, we were learning how to follow Jesus as a family. And I'm a busy man at home with two young kids. Emmett's two and a half. Annabelle's 10 months old. She just started walking. So we have two mobile humans to keep eyes on. And so uh, I'm learning about coffee, learning about repentance, and it's great in the King household. Um, But hey, this morning we are going to dive back into Ephesians. If you were with us last week, Mick talked about an introduction to the book and called us into really loving Jesus, not just being faithful to follow, but loving him with our lives. And next week, Carl Goley is going to talk on Father's Day. It's going to be amazing. And after that, we're jumping back into Ephesians with Weston Nichols taking us into more of the passage. So we're going to jump right in here. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. So let's be Bible openers if you have them, and you can read along with me. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 10. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. Uh, So we are going to look at three things in this passage. First, the benefits of the grace of God. Second, the cost of the grace of God. And third, our response to those benefits and the cost. So we're going to jump right in to verse three. And we're taking this line by line this morning. And really, if you're like me, I don't need another service to go to. I want to encounter God. And my heart is hungry to know him more. And so just because we move from a time of worship into teaching, doesn't it all mean that the Holy Spirit has left the room and now it's time to get academic? I'm going to be led by the person of the Holy Spirit. And I have a challenge for you if you're here listening in or if you're in the room. You know, I've been telling the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to sidestep you if you initiate something with me. 
whether I'm at the gym, I'm at HEB, I'm at work, I'm on a stage, I'm sitting in a chair, if you want to bring up in me something to repent of, somebody to pray for, a place to go, something to say, something to speak to me, I'm not going to sidestep what you initiate. So I'm going to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit up here, and I'll challenge you guys to be sensitive because what does the Holy Spirit bring up in you as we open his word? Is that cool? Great. All right, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First thing we want to bring up is he calls him Father. That God is a father. And there's many people in this room with many different backgrounds. Some of you guys don't know what it means to have a good earthly father that loves you, provides for you, protects you, uh, wants to care for you, and actually believes in you. And I believe that Jesus wants to communicate the father is really good and there's a way to be brought into the family today. If you want a place to call home, if you want a place to be put in family, God wants you in his family and if you feel like my life's not worth anything, I don't know why I'm alive, the Father wants to give you purpose. And the invitation this morning is to enter into the family of God. Amen. Moving uh, along in the verse, at the end of it, it talks about uh, that who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The spiritual blessings are going to be described in the following verses. But I'll talk about what does it mean in Christ? Sometimes the way things are phrased in the Bible are hard to understand. Anybody else get that? I'm like, what in the world? I don't speak like that normally. So what does this mean? So in Christ, what happened? What is in Christ? What this is meaning is what Jesus accomplished, the effects of that. What does it mean to be brought from the kingdom of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light? That means to be put in Christ. And there's an effect that had on your personal body. There's an effect that had on your spirit, on the trajectory of your destiny. Being in Christ affected you. It means you used to be in the world. Now you're in him. And I like it in Ephesians 2.6. It says that we has, he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have been seated in Christ in the heavenly places. So who knows where Jesus is right now? Specifically, he's at the right hand of the Father. So we are in Christ, seated with him at the right hand of the Father. He's trying to communicate that our position with the Father has changed. Now that we've been saved, we're not here working our way, trying to be right with God. We've been made right with God. We have something called right standing, righteousness. This in theology is called justification. I've been justified by the blood of Jesus to where I am now a first loved, I, like I'm loved by God. He cares about me. We're all his favorites. He wants to be for us and he wants to provide for us. And we have right standing with him. There's nothing left between me and God the Father that needs to be resolved. I like it in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is not irritable or resentful. And it says that God is love. So there's nothing that he is irritable towards you about. So he never responds to you with irritability. I wish you would have just done better. Wish you wouldn't have this. Wish we would have acted this way. He's not resentful towards you. It's not, well, it's too late for you. Oh, doing that thing again. Say, no, you are mine. And he's speaking identity because Jesus paid the way for you to be in the love of God, seated in Christ Jesus. And there are spiritual blessings that came upon you because of what Jesus did. So we're gonna read more about this. Let's move on to uh, verse four. 
says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's a big statement. What does it mean? First, let's take holy. What does it mean to be holy before God? I know growing up, I uh, grew up in different faith backgrounds. And one of the big kind of phrasings we would say is, you know, we're all just a bunch of worms. You know, like we're all just horrible people. All humans are worms before God. We're just going to be horrible the rest of our life. You know, a bunch of worms. And I, I don't think that's what Jesus accomplished in me. I think I used to be worthless and he put worth on me. I think people don't pay a price for something it's th- that it isn't worth that cost. So when Jesus paid his life for me, it put value on me. He gave me worth. And so I like in First uh, Peter, it talks about that we're a royal priesthood in a holy nation. So the way he looks at you, no matter what your level of faithfulness looks like, it isn't, oh, you're a worm, you're worthless. It's you're a son. I'm going to teach you how to reign in life through the man Jesus Christ. I like saying that I get to deal with being the bride of Christ. Women get to deal with being sons of God. And it matters that we have an understanding of what those things mean. Because I'm the bride of Christ, as in I'm loved deeply by Jesus. And being a son means I get the firstborn inheritance. And women in the room, you know you have the firstborn inheritance of power, of love, of sanctification, and of purpose that the men do. We get to be brides of Christ and sons of God. And this is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And I like in Hebrews 10, chapter 14, it says he has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. So I've been made holy before God. I'm seated before before God in heavenly places. I'm with Christ Jesus. And on earth, I'm being sanctified to start looking like who I really am. Does that make sense? Because everybody knows I ain't got it together. I talked about having to repent to my kids, repent to my wife. There's still things in Jeremy that need working out. There's still things in us that need working out. But before God, we are holy in front of him. I like thinking about it like this. So uh, I don't know if you've ever driven an old beat up car that's got bad parts. And instead of getting a new one, just kind of like replace the next part. It's like, it takes five key cranks just to get the thing going. You gotta like jiggle your keys just to open the door. Then if your passengers wanna get, well, let me just get it for you. It's kind of hard unless you've done it before. You know, it's like, well, don't press the gas. It might die on you. Smoke comes out at a regular, that's fine. You know, it's just how it runs. It shakes when I drive, but you know, it keeps me awake. So it's a great car. And you keep telling folks, well, I'm just gonna get it fixed. I'm just gonna get it fixed. Well, eventually that car will die and new parts won't fix it. So I like saying we had this old car that we kept trying to be better, get new parts. And God said, let me just get you a whole new car. It's a whole new operating system. It's a new driver's seat, new engine. But here's the thing. We still want to drive the new car like our old car drove because that's all we know. And so I'm stepping into my new Bugatti and I'm cranking it like five times getting to start. And it's like killing the engine. It's like, wait, you don't need to do that. It works, you know? Or like I'm stepping into it and it's like, I'm, well, I don't want to get past 40 because usually the smoke starts coming out. It's like, it's a Bugatti. Like you're going to be fine. But the thing is, I, I will drive like my old self and not like my new self if I don't read the owner's manual. 
And so there's new things and new cars that you don't know about. And so when I'm driving the new car, sometimes like bells and whistles start going off if I get too close to like a wall. I'm like, what is going on? You know, like, why, what do you, why is my steering wheel moving by itself? And it's because there's things called conviction in me I used to not have. And I'm trying to read, what am I now alive for? But if I don't know this, I will have a Bugatti and drive my old Camry, right? And so God wants us to become alive to what he's done in us. If you want scripture for this, it's Romans 6, 16 through 19. Talks about however we present ourselves, we will obey it. So if I present myself as an instrument of unrighteousness, it bears more lawlessness. If I present myself as instrument of righteousness, it leads to sanctification. So I'm reading my owner's manual, learning how to drive. Okay, Lord, I am holy before you. And the more I see what I've become, I can manifest on earth. So God did not save me so I could have a free ticket to heaven. He saved me for heaven to come into me. Because if I was saved just to go to heaven, I would have been teleported the moment I got born again. But he left me here. We're all still here. So there's a reason we're alive. And it's to become more like him. So I've been made holy before him. It also says that we are blameless before God. It means that God will not take the old you and blame you today for what you used to do. He won't disqualify you today for what you did yesterday. Sometimes we think, well, I, I know I'm saved. I know Jesus loves me. But man, if you used to know the old me, there's no way God would use me today. It says you are blameless before him. So he didn't put in, in, in our new cars, he didn't take old parts of your old car and put them in your new car. That'd be a little strange, huh? Like, who buys a new car and says, hey, could you take some of the old parts out of there and put it in here? I really love the old engine. <laughs> you know, it's like everything's new. And so if I keep thinking I am who I was and I disqualify myself as my old car drove, we're not going to step in the fullness of what he says we can be. And so I'm saying, Jesus, show me what it means. I actually will say this out loud on a regular basis. If you're thinking of practicals, wake up tomorrow morning and the first thing out of your mouth is, Father, thank you, you've made me holy before you. I'm a firstborn son. You believe in me today that I'm blameless. And I'm gonna know more about you today, more about who I am in you, and I'm gonna see the kingdom come today. I'm not afraid of sinning. I'm gonna become sanctified and live in righteousness and just see how that changes things for you. It's having the lamp of your eye healthy so your body's full of light. The way I see can dictate where I go. But if I'm not seeing right, if the way I'm thinking is wrong, it'll destroy me. Does that make sense? All right, moving on, we are going to jump into verse, chapter 5, or verse 5. It says that he predestined us. Now, predestination, sometimes a scary word to folks, but I promise it's a really good topic to look at. And so Weston Nichols is going to talk about that more in depth in two weeks, and you don't want to miss it because it's really good to understand more and learn more about, but just not the main topic because we're going to talk more about grace today predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, what I love about this, it says he's predestined me for adoption to himself. Like he's been dreaming about, can't wait till he becomes mine again. I can't wait till I can have him fully in. Because the inheritance we receive from God changes our identity if you receive an inheritance on earth, it gives you prosperity, but it doesn't change who you are. 
But when I become adopted by the Father, who I am completely changes. And God's just saying, I'm so excited for you to look like me again, for me to have you. And there's folks who don't know him yet that God also has predestined to know him. And we get to co-labor with Jesus to see them be saved. And here's what I'll say about this. I don't understand how predestination fits into everything. But if I need to understand before I obey, I've made myself God when God is God. Does that make sense? John 14 talks about that he is loved by my obedience to his commandments. It is vital to know that God is not loved through my acquisition of knowledge, but my obedience to his commandments. So when I look at what Jesus said to do, I'm going to prioritize that. And if he gives me a grace to understand him, great. But if not, on judgment day, I won't be held accountable to my understanding of predestination. I'll be held accountable to did I obey and share the gospel. Is that cool? Great. Moving on to verse 6. I'm going to back up a little bit so we can understand it better. It says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So this grace is glorious, and he will be worshipped forever and deserves praise because of it. And there's two parts we're talking about. The benefits of his grace, which we just discussed, and I now want to talk about the cost of his grace. Because he's glorious, he has glorious grace. It's a reason to worship him because of the benefits and the cost. Now, if, if I ever show up to church or just I wake up and it's hard for me to get to a place of worship, there's a good chance that I either have forgotten about the benefit or I've forgotten about the cost. And I want to jump into what, what was the cost. We talk about that grace was a free gift we received, but it cost him everything. And if I only focus on what was free to me, but I don't see the price he paid, I won't live a sacrificial life for his glory. It'll just be a bless me gospel. So when Jesus forgave us, he didn't just snap his fingers and say, all right, you can enter into heaven. I am all powerful, omnipotent, I can do anything, boom. Because he's also just. And Jesus had to pay for our redemption. So it says, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Wages means income that you have earned by works. And so our lawless deeds, the sin we had done, earned us something and earned us death. It was the income coming towards us. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, not to slap us on the wrist, but so he could be a sacrifice that he would actually receive our wages rather than us receive them. And so he said, I'm going to take your wages death so that you don't have to experience death yourself. Looking at verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. We just sang that song beginning, saying, only by the blood of Jesus. This is what we're talking about. It was this transaction he made where he gave his blood in exchange for what our blood should have paid. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Because every time you see that word redemption, you need to think transaction. This wasn't just a someone snaps their fingers, a one-way thing. It was, okay, if I've got a gift card that's worth $100 and I bring it to the store to buy something, I use the gift card and I redeem it. I use it. I give the funds. I get something back. And so before God, our sins 
There were wages that were owed, and Jesus gave his blood instead of ours. And I'm actually going to walk through what this was like for Jesus. This might seem intense to some, but this is the place we live from. Because what I hope the Holy Spirit does is he gives us a new reason for waking up in the morning. That he takes us out of whatever situation we're in and he reminds us, let's be heavenly minded. Let's have eternity in mind. Let's have the purposes and plans of God as the normal reason that we function. The normal reason for being. Why we go to work. Why we have a family. So when I read about Jesus in the Gospels, on the night that he was betrayed, he went out to a garden to pray. And Jesus is about to give his life to pay for the sin of all humanity. Jesus has never been separated from the Father for all eternity except for these moments. It says when he went out into the garden in the book of Luke that he began to be so anxious, he actually sweated drops of blood. And this isn't figurative speech because there's actually a medical diagnosis for this. And it's called hematohydrosis. It's when you get so anxious, you actually sweat blood. And he was about to take on the sin of the world, and he's never been separated from God before. The disciples he had invested in for three years completely abandoned him and denied him. And he had done nothing wrong. And he's not going through this to say, man, I told you so, and pity me. He's saying, I love you. Understand, I love you. It says in Hebrews 12, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured all I'm about to describe to tell you one thing. I've made a way and I love you. Nobody made him do this. He did it willingly. So he was betrayed by his disciples. The first thing that uh, the religious leaders at the time that crucified Jesus, they took him before their leaders and they mocked and beat him. And Jesus was completely silent the whole time. It says like a lamb led to the slaughter, was silent, he uttered nothing. Because if he would have said anything, he could have gotten out of it. Because no accusation was true. He really was without sin. And he could call on angels at any moment to come set him free. Saying, I'm coming willingly. The son of God being beaten by the religious leaders that are supposed to teach people about God. And he takes it. But not only that, they then take him to the Romans, the Gentile leading nation at the time, and what the Romans do is they do something called scourging. And they punish Jesus by scourging. This is like being whipped, except the whip has pieces of metal and bone in it. And the purpose of scourging is to mangle the flesh and take the flesh off. The Jewish leaders, their law said only 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes were allowed. But the Romans don't have that ordinance. They can do this as much as they want, their thing is just don't let them die because we still want to crucify them after they're scourged. So Jesus went through this thinking in his mind, this is worth it so I can have my people back. He's saying, I want to show my love in this. This isn't pity me, Jesus. This is, see, I love you. No one's making me do this. I want you. I am willing to lose what I look like so I can have you back. After he's scourged, he gets put in front of a Roman battalion. That's 600 soldiers. And they put a purple cloak on him and a crown of thorns on his head. And his flesh is so mangled, taking his clothes on and putting new ones off is probably agonizing. 
And then he's in front of 600 men. And these are not the valiant, honorable men we have in our nation. This is murdering, raping, pillaging Gentiles that have no law of God in their life. And it's just Jesus in front of 600 men and he submits himself to them. And he gets mocked and beaten. And he could have bested any of them on any day. He was the son of God and all dominion was coming to him. He said, it's worth it. And no one's making me do this. I willingly give myself. After that, they take the purple robe off of him and they make him carry a cross up a hill. Now he was still scourged. And so his flesh is so mangled. He's carrying a cross on a mangled uh, shoulder and he can't finish. So another guy has to come up behind him and help him carry his cross. When he gets to the top of the hill, they put nails in his hands and nails in his feet. And he's still like barely hanging on to life. And when they raise him up, the only way he can breathe is by supporting himself in his own strength so he doesn't suffocate. And the whole time he's saying, this is how much I love you. This is what it costs to get you back. And Psalm chapter 24 says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord except for him with clean hands and a pure heart? And I can tell you nobody can ascend the hill of the Lord because nobody had clean hands and a pure heart. That was talking about the mountain of God approaching God and being one with him again. Jesus's hill was called Golgotha. He climbed up the hill himself, the man-made hill, and saying, I will climb the hill men were supposed to climb and pay the price they were supposed to pay so that they can be on top of that mountain of God and be with God. And so he is paying the price that we owed, owed God. And, and it, Psalm 22, you can turn there quickly if you're able to. Jesus, when he's on the cross, paying for the sins of the people, he looks down, they're dividing his clothes, casting lots for what he wore. The Pharisees and religious leaders are mocking him. They have a sign on top of it that says, behold, king of the Jews. And he's being mocked and beaten as the son of God. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And remember, Jesus is communicating, I love you. But what does he mean when he says that? He's quoting Psalm 22. Look at verse one. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jump to verse 12. It says, many bowls encompass me. Strong bowls of bastion surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 is describing what happened to Jesus. When he's on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's communicating, I have become the Psalm 22 man so you would never have to. I am paying this so that you would never have to be the Psalm 22 hopeless, beaten, distraught man. The one who never deserved it took it so that we could become gods again. And it continues in verse 29. It says, 
This is the Psalm 22 man, Jesus. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That's when he says, it is finished. He has done it. Saying, I have accomplished something so you never have to be separated from God again. So you never have to be hopeless again. So you never have to be separated. That you can have redemption through my blood. It has been paid. And not only did he die on that day, but he rose again three days later to show that I am bigger than life and its problems and there's new life in following Jesus. And it is important that we don't only know the benefits of that new life, but the cost he paid to give us that life. If we only know one side, we won't live a life worthy of what he paid. Going on in verse eight, it says that he has lavished this upon us in all wisdom and insight, that there wasn't a better way to redeem humanity than the way Jesus did it. Snapping his fingers wouldn't have been better. Just wiping it away wouldn't have been better. We read about this in the Old Testament, where back before Jesus came, before he was the perfect sacrifice that made us right with God, when people sinned, since God is still just, somebody had to pay the price. And so they would take their sins and symbolically put it on an animal, and that animal would bear the wrath of God instead of them. And the animal would die, but they would be forgiven. However, in Hebrews 9 and 10, you can deep dive this later, Hebrews 9 and 10, it describes that the blood of bulls and goats would forgive the one who sinned, but it wouldn't change their identity. So they kept hold of their sinful nature, the thing that enslaved them to just sin again in the very same way, that that never changed with blood of bulls and goats. But it says with the blood of Jesus, our identity actually changes to we're no longer sinners saved by grace, but we were sinners, we became saints, and now we live unto him. So his blood can actually sanctify you out of dead works so you never have to return to them and actually live in new life. This is wisdom and insight. It's saying not only do we get to go to heaven, but the purpose isn't a free ticket to heaven. It's you can actually return to the image that you were made in. So we talked about what Jesus went through. In Isaiah 52, it says that Jesus would be marred beyond human semblance. So that means when you saw him on the cross, you actually couldn't tell he was a man because he was so beat up and torn up. That if you would see, you would just see a piece of flesh on wood make you think, what is that? I can't tell what that is. In the same way, we were made in the garden in the image of God, but the way we lived after the fall of man looked nothing like our original value, looked nothing like our original image. And what Jesus did is he said, I'm gonna take your image and put it on myself and in return, I'm gonna give you my image. And so when he's up there and you can't even tell he's a man, he's saying, this is what you used to look like. And I'm destroying the old you and I'm gonna give you my righteousness in return. So it's no longer based on your works, but the free gift that I give you. That's amazing. And so that's why we worship him, saying there was nothing I could do to be saved. And now the purpose of my life is to honor him with my life. 
If you only know Jesus as a free ticket to heaven, you've missed the whole thing. That the purpose of his sacrifice was the wisdom and insight to make you look like him again and to sanctify you. I like it in um, Genesis, uh, the, the sons of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were the first humans made. Their sons were Cain and Abel. And Cain became jealous of Abel and he killed him. And what God said is, Cain, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me from the ground. And it was saying, grant justice. There has been lawless deeds performed. Sin has happened. Injustice has happened. Justify this. Somebody needs to pour out wrath because of this. Injustice has happened. And it's crying out to God from the ground. And what it says in Hebrews 12 is that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Jesus' blood is there and it's saying, you are forgiven, you're free. The price has been paid. You are redeemed. Hear what I've accomplished. This is the newness. There is grace and there is hope that we're no longer under the blood of uh, what, was, what was able, but we're now in Jesus. And there is freedom and redemption and that anybody can come and be saved. And this is why we worship him. The last two verses I want us to read, this is Ephesians 9 and 10. It says, it's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I love that it says all things. Because if we look at the full cost of what he paid and the fact that he can unite all things, it means nobody is too far away to be saved. That nobody is too far gone in their sin to be saved. That nobody is too hopeless. Jesus can save anybody who wants to come into relationship with him. Back in the Old Testament, the people were the Israelites. They were commanded to completely destroy this other group of people called the Canaanites. And it's because the Canaanite people were beyond sinful. They had sexual immorality, even worse than we see today. They openly practiced bestiality and many things like that. And God's commandment was completely destroy the animals, completely destroy the people. They don't get to live. And what they did to the kings of the Canaanites is tell me if this reminds you of anything. They would kill them, hang them on a tree, take them down at evening and put them in a grave and roll a stone over it. Does that remind you of anybody? So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to become like that king so that the people are not destroyed. So I'm going to take the wrath that those people deserve so that now nobody is too far gone. And the Old Testament has been saying, there's going to be hope for anyone. So wherever you are in the room today, there's grace and there's hope that's enough because Jesus has already paid the cost and you can come know him. But Jesus also says to us that the way is narrow and the path is narrow that leads to life, but wide is the gate and the path that leads to destruction. And I can tell you that the gate is open today if you want to know him, but I don't own the gate and I'm not the gatekeeper, so I can't make it wider for you. So it's all out surrender to what he's put in this book or nothing. 
And I think some of us in the room too, we have accepted Jesus as our savior, as our Lord. We've entered into the narrow gate by his blood, not because we had it all perfect or figured out, but we're saying we are willing to give up anything. We are willing to be surrendered and his blood lets us enter in. But then it says that the path is also narrow. And sometimes I wonder if we forget about his lordship after a couple years of following him. Is he still your reason for being? In Romans, it says that whoever confesses with their heart or believes with their heart, confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, that he'll be saved. It doesn't say whoever confesses that he's their friend or that confesses that they enjoy his presence or that they go to church or that they serve the church or that they raise a God-fearing family. They say, is he Lord? That means if he says jump, I say how high. That means if he says go, I go yes to, you are Lord, because I am not my own savior, you are. And he's looking to see, will our lives reflect the cost and the benefit that he gives us through his sacrifice? So I wanna invite everybody, this is about as far as we're gonna go in the scriptures today. But remember we talked about if the Holy Spirit is gonna nudge anything in us this morning, let's not sidestep him. That if there's folks in the room who you feel the nudge of, it's a need to come back and fully surrender again. There's things that I'm trying to bring that are wider than the, nap, than the path is narrow. I'm willing to surrender that again. If there's folks in the room that you don't know Jesus and you wanna come, the gate is open and you can come. I can't make it wider for you, but Jesus pays the price for you to come. And as long as you're saying, Lord, I'm in, whatever you wanna say, you can be saved and know Jesus and receive that grace. But we're gonna let the Holy Spirit really do a heart check in us. Are we living a life that is worthy of the costs he paid? So we can all stand and I'm gonna pray for us. Our prayer teams can go ahead and come to the front. And if you need prayer for anything today, if you have a physical need you need prayer for, if you just need help and want prayer, you wanna be saved, or you need to say, I need to freshly surrender again to what Jesus has accomplished, there is grace this morning and I want you to come and receive prayer because this is where we believe that God is actually in the house. But I'm gonna pray for us and the band's gonna play and you just come as you have need. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and lead this time. I ask that you would be honored by our lives. And we just say, thank you, Jesus, that you set us free. Thank you for the cost you paid. Thank you for the grace that's available. And we say we want to honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.